Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Skin in the Game by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life. So, we've done a whole bunch of Taleb books before, and each one seems to dig a little bit deeper. We started out with the ideas in Fool by Randomness, that there is more randomness around us than anybody really ever knows. Then he goes a little bit deeper and says that there's, well, there's all these black swans out there that could uh, randomly come over and strike us down, either positive or negative. And then he goes a little bit deeper and he says that like all these random events, a bit of anti-fragility is what can help you get ready for it. And then he goes a little bit deeper again and says that in order to be anti-fragile, you need a bit of skin in the game. So it's not just that the skin in the game is necessary for fairness, commercial efficiency and risk management. It's really necessary to understand the whole entire world. Firstly, it's all about bullshit identification and filtering. As we're going to learn in, uh, in this episode, there's a difference between being someone who's just theoretical and in the clouds and someone who's on the ground doing practice. There's a difference between cosmetic and true expertise and know what you're on about. And there's a difference between academia and those in the real world. And also, it's about the distortions of symmetry and reciprocity in life. He's saying that if you want to get any rewards, then you've also got to take the risks. You shouldn't be making others pay the price of your mistakes. You shouldn't be. You should be anti-fragile at your own risk. You shouldn't be putting the risks of your anti-fragility and those expenses on others. If you inflict risks on others and they're harmed, then you should be the one paying the price, not them. So Nassim Taleb, he's a. Personally, my favorite philosopher, I'd say, and uh, he's done it again with this book. So, let's get into the episode. Antaeus was a giant of sorts. So, he was the son of Mother Earth, Gaia, and Poseidon. It's pretty odd there, the son of three. So, I don't know if they got together on a massive No, orgy. no, I think, no, no. It's like Mother Earth, comma, Gaia, and Gaia is Mother oh, Earth. Yeah. There was three, three nah. down one night, Antaeus, <laughs> well, which would be pretty imp- be, impressive. Yeah. We'll go with that. But he had a strange <laughs> occupation. So, he was a bit of a wrestler. He used to be a bit of a villain back in the day. People would just be walking past, doing a leisurely stroll on a you know Tuesday morning and Antaeus would literally just whack him. He'd just have put all his weight on them and then just smash them on the ground. And then he actually built a template for his father, Poseidon, using all the skulls of his raw victims. So, a bit of an evil bastard, this one. Yeah, crazy. He was deemed to be invincible. Everyone thought this guy is so tough. He's uh, unbeatable. He's got the power of Gyre and Poseidon. He's just taking people's skulls and, and using them. Uh, and they thought, well, how are we going to get rid of this dude? And it was tasked to Hercules. They said, Hercules, come on, mate. This is your job. Let's, uh, let's take care of Antaeus for us, please. So, a mammoth task that was very scary for Hercules. But Hercules had been working out at the gym. If you've seen the videos of Hercules or played the games, he's a, he's, he's, he's a unit. He's, he's ripped. So, what he did, he went up to Antaeus and he lifted him off the ground and this is what turned out to, to work really well because it terminated him by crushing him as his feet remained out of contact with the earth. That's right. When you removed Antaeus from the earth, when you took away his contact with his, with his mama, with Gaia, with the mother earth, that's where he kind of lost all his powers. That's where he was deriving all of his strength from. And as soon as you took him away, you, as soon as he lost contact with earth, that was it. He was done. So, contact with the earth was the key to Antaeus and it's also the key for us out there in the real world. And in this metaphor, uh, contact with the real world is done via the mechanism of having skin in the game. That's it. If, you, if you're removing yourself from the ground, if you're removing yourself from actual contact with the real world, then you're losing all of your abilities. The only way to have any power is to also have some skin in the game by having some contact with the real world. So, 
in the real world, what we do is we learn through discovery and we learn through pain. So this is what the Greeks called pathometa, mathemata, apparently. But <laughs> what this essentially means is guide your learning through pain. And it's something a lot of mothers of young children know really well. It's like through pain that you actually learn. And of course, it's probably the main idea you could say you could take out of his other book, Anti-Fragile. Yeah, sometimes you, uh, you need to let them touch the hot stove so they know not to touch the hot stove. If you, if you just told them in theory, they probably wouldn't really quite understand who can feel that pain as well. We need to have exposure to the real world. We need to pay the prices if we want to get any of the upsides as well. All the cool shit in the world was done by those who were in the real world. Um, he says that a lot of us believe that things were actually invented by universities. They weren't at all. They weren't the ones on the ground who, were, who had contacts with the earth. It was actually the people who were the tinkerers and entrepreneurs and later... The, it was legitimized by some sort of formalization and I guess that's when the universities came in and in a roundabout way sort of claimed the work of the people with skin in the game. So in other words, uh, contact with the earth, it's vastly superior to be obtained through reasoning rather than the self-serving institutions that have been busy hiding from us. The idea of skin in the game is woven into history. Historically, all of the warlords and the warmongers they were actually warriors themselves. They weren't in their ivory tower calling the shots from afar. They weren't just sending messages out to the battle saying, okay, let's move over here and let's kill these dudes now. They were actually saying, they were actually there on the front lines themselves. They were actually risk takers, not risk transferers. They, were, they weren't just uh, using people as their, as their pawns. They were actually on the front lines themselves taking the risk in war. Yeah, all the cool his Roman emperors like Julian the Apostati, he died on the battleground fighting in the never-ending war on the Persian frontier, similar to Caesar, Alexander, Napoleon. One of Julian's predecessors, Valerian, was captured with a spear put through his chest. Constantine Paleogus, as he was going to war, he removed his purple toga, then joined his cousins, who were all also at the top of the society, charging Turkish troops with the swords above their heads, proudly facing certain death. So this is how the leaders used to roll back in the day. Yeah, and we've obviously cherry-picked four or five anecdotes there, but it extrapolates far beyond that. He, uh, he says that less than a third of Roman emperors died in their beds, and uh, he said that really, of, oh, even of those third, if they'd have lived longer, they probably would have died in a, in a coup or a battle. So most of the people weren't dying of old age or illness, they are actually dying on the battlefields. So even quite recently, it was the monarchs, so using the, uh, in, in the British Empire, for example, the monarchs derived their legitimacy from a social contract that required them to do some sort of physical risk-taking. So, in 1982, the British royal family, they made sure that Prince Andrew got off his high horse, got off his ass, and actually joined all the commoners in the Falkland War. And uh, he wasn't just in the back shouting orders and just chilling out. He was actually on a helicopter in the front line. And there's something sort of, I don't know about you, Astro, but it seems good about that. Like You want your leaders in the front line. It just makes sense, and you've got somewhat more of a, a lot more respect for them if they're doing it rather than they're just calling the shots behind the scenes without any risk whatsoever. Yeah, certainly. If you're just getting that status because you're born into it, it doesn't seem like you've actually really earned it. You, uh, Taleb says that you're getting the prominence, but in order to get that prominence, you're actually trading in at that personal risk. Now, there's a lot can be said of Prince Andrew post the Falklands War of... 1982. He's, Is that the same Prince Andrew? It's the same one. <laughs> Fuck. That one. If you, <laughs> so I don't know if we should be holding him up in high regard anymore. But um, maybe, maybe the, he's the uh, 1980s ant- version. Maybe. <laughs> well, maybe he's Antaeus post Hercules. 
<laughs> That's it. He got Maybe removed the from the ground. Family. He did. He got removed from the ground and he's completely so it works, went hey? off the rails. <laughs> so this is what happens when you uh, lose your skin in the game around about day. You do the arc of, oh, let's not go there. But essentially today, it probably doesn't sound very familiar, right? In 2020, this decade, um, it's clear that some of our leaders who were calling the shots, who might be behind the scenes, it might be some, the CEO of your corporation sometimes, it might be some uh, political leaders, whatnot, Things are working a little bit different to the Roman emperors who are on the front lines. Yeah, that's right. Nowadays, we've got a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of rules and regulations, a lot of checks and balances, a lot of you know government interference. And we think these are all good things. We think these are the things that are keeping us safe. We're, we're keeping in check the people who are out there taking risks and we're saying, okay, well, you can or you can't do this. And the government puts in the, the rules and regulations and the bureaucracies around managing what they can or can't do. And we think this is a good thing. We think this is keeping everybody safe. But actually, counterintuitively, it's kind of separating their consequences from their actions. They're taking their actions, but their consequences aren't directly felt. So this separation of consequences and actions through bureaucracy and, and protection and everything like that, uh, it's going to lead to one consequence and it's going to happen all by itself. Again, a little bit like Antaeus where something might blow up and fail because uh, say if the system doesn't have mechanisms of skin in the game, there's going to be all sorts of build-up of imbalances and eventually things are going to blow up and for sometimes it might blow up and not survive. Sometimes it might blow up and survive. So one clear example of this was the the GFC 2008, the banking crisis, and what Taleb, he likes to add his own little names to things. He calls this the Bob Rubin trade. Now, Bob Rubin, he was the former secretary of the US Treasury. He was one of the people whose names and signatures are on the banknotes that you use. Over the, the decade leading up to the GFC, he'd collected more than $120 million in compensation in his personal salary, uh, which is which is a fair whack, $120 million over a decade well, leading up one, to yeah. Oh, definitely. But then the thing was, okay, so he was he was taking a lot of risks. He was making a lot of money. But then when it crashed in 2008, then he was saying, oh, shit, there's a black swan. Oh, we couldn't control this. Government, can you please bail us out? So he was taking all of the risks and making all the rewards. But then when those risks came to fruition, when those risks and everything crashed, he actually didn't lose any of that. He didn't have to give back that $120 bucks that he made over the last decade. He just got the nice little bailout and he was on his way. So he's what he calls a master risk transferrer, where he makes steady money from a certain class of uh, concealed risks, like when things are going well in the system, he gets a little little cut of the action. Um, all the risks are sort of in the future. And if the risks come in the future and something actually happens, then, of course, he doesn't have to pay for it, but he does get the upside as things are going well. So what really happened was those risks were transferred to the everyday Joe Blow, the butcher, the school teacher, the, the supervisor in the tin can factory, the Spanish grammar specialists who... Nassim Taleb has it out for for some reason. But all these general population people were really the ones that were fronting up the risk for these crazy trades that he was making. Because when it was working, then he was getting Bob big old Bobby was getting all the upside. But when it didn't work, the government and of course by by definition then the taxpayers were the ones who were bailing out and paying for all his losses. That's it. And it's because of people who were the master risk transferers that we had the huge problem that happened in 2008 and the big blow up. And uh, it, it can happen again if the whole system doesn't have a mechanism of skin in the game, which we're going to get into in the later, later in the episode, where people who are taking the risks, they need to be taking the consequences as well as taking the upside. Hammurabi's law 
was posted almost 4,000 years ago and that code had had one central theme and that was to establish symmetries between people in transactions. And that way, nobody could transfer the hidden tail risks. There'd be no Bob Rubin trades where you're getting all the upside and giving everybody else the risks of the downside. Yeah, I think Hamarubi 3,800 years ago would have uh, poor old Bob Rudin um, hung or given a lethal <laughs> injection or something like that. He Be- certainly would. Because Hamarubi's best known injunction is as follows. If a builder builds a house and a house collapses and causes the death of the owner of the house, the builder shall be put to death. There you go. It's a bit like the old an eye for an eye. Of course, today, if a builder builds a house and it falls down, the builder points to the architect, who points to the surveyor, points to the engineer, and then nobody <laughs> gets No one dies. No one dies. No <laughs> one gets the blame. owner. That's, That's right. it. So it's very, it's very different because you're obviously without skin in the game, you're building that building, somebody else lives in it. They've got the risk of the roof falling on their head and killing them. But if you did have skin in the game, if it was your roof, you built it and you said, yep, this is fine to live in, and then it wasn't fine to live in, then suddenly you wouldn't be fine to live either. Over time, this law has sort of evolved to be a little bit more uh, pleasant, uh, but the moral sy- symmetry is a bit like the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So essentially, if you said someone to, hey, to right to move into the house, I mean, if you were giving yourself a device, would you move into that house? Quite simple. And having that skin in the game, having that, you know, you're, you're taking on the risks as well that you want others to take, it kind of solves the, the black swan problem. Uh, and also it solves a lot of other problems of matters of uncertainty, both at the individual level and at the collective societal level as well. Because ultimately, when you're actually on the ground taking these risks, things are going to get a hell of a lot better when you know your ass is on the line as well. Yeah, if you got skin in the game, and then you add it over time, let's say it's a, a shitty little building. If you give it 20 years, uh, the building falls down and then there's consequences. Uh, everyone's probably going to learn from that event. And that means the whole, you know, building code and the whole system is going to actually improve because of, of that whole experience. But if no one's getting punished or anything, those same issues are going to keep popping up. So, skin in the game plus time removes all the fragile things in the system and it keeps the robust. So, there are plenty of problems, I guess, that come without skin in the game if the the end user and the designer are very different, if they're different people. One example, Taleb says he hates going on stage uh, in like a big lecture theater, there's a large audience and the audience is looking at him and he looks great because the lights are shining on him perfectly so that everybody in the audience can see him very well. But when he looks out to the crowd, all he can see is dark blurs, the lights are shining right in his eyes, it's very uncomfortable for him. And the problem there is that the person who is making the light never actually speaks on the stage. They're only seeing it from their perspective, from the lighting perspective, from the audience perspective. They actually never see it from the speaker's perspective. So the speaker doesn't make the lights, the light person doesn't actually speak and in the end, you get the shocking system. Another example or manifestation of this is if you say you go to Metro North in New York City, I'm guessing Taleb actually experienced this as he was writing the books perhaps, but they renovated its trains in a total overhaul. So the trains, they look much more modern. They look great. They get neater. They got brighter colors. They've even got power plugs for your computers that apparently if you go on the trains, nobody's actually using them. But the big one is on the edge of by the wall, there used to be this flat ledge where if you're sitting down, you buy your morning coffee, you got somewhere to put your morning coffee, you probably put your laptop on your lap and then you're good. But of course, the designer who upgraded everything, who doesn't ride trains to work, probably doesn't drink coffee either whilst reading. 
and they were looking at the aesthetic improvements that are on the table and they made the ledge just slightly tilted at, you know, 15 degrees or something. So for the designer, it looks pretty good. Yeah, it looks great. But for the end user, <laughs> you're trying to sit there and have your coffee, you just put it down and that 10 degree makes it fall over. <laughs> yeah. But obviously, the person who designed the train isn't actually using the train and so then again, you get those problems. I think Apple's a, a classic of constantly constantly changing and innovating and bringing out new cords and new cables and new plugs and uh, but... For whatever reason, it seems that nothing seems to sync up or you need an adapter for this or an adapter for that. To them, they're like, oh, this is a great idea. We've got this new product. Here's this revolutionary way to do it. But then to the person who buys it, you end up with six different cables and four different plugs and eight different adapters. Yeah, that was a shocking year when they made they got rid of that one port and you had mm. to get an adapter into the plug into the adapter. <laughs> Short term, well, I guess the long term, they, they kind of kept us hanging around. And we, <laughs> That's right. They sucked us in. It also explains a severe problem with architecture today as well because architects, they're probably designing to impress other architects to win awards at architecture awards nights and whatnot. But all of us just users who were on the ground who had to deal with everything, we end up with these strange irreversible structures that really don't satisfy the well-being whatsoever of the residents. To actually improve the lifestyle of the residents, it takes a lot of time and progressive tinkering but we end up with some specialists like sitting in the Ministry of Urban Planning, some mm. bureaucracy who's not even living in the community with with all of us people who are actually catching the trains. And what we end up with is, is just little tilted ledges where you can't put your bloody coffee, which is a seemingly improvement to the people without skin in the game at their desk. But the whole system, again, is coming worse off. That's right. Again, the designer has nothing to do with the end user and while it may look cool and it seems funky and innovative and cool shapes and cool designs, it turns out it's just really impractical. And so, the things that are designed by people without skin in the game tend to grow in complexity and complication. Eventually, they'll probably collapse of all this, but things just like keep evolving to become more and more and more complex. Yeah, we lose a lot of the simplicity that good systems have. So, people out there who have complicated solutions and they bring them up, they don't really have an incentive to go out there and implement simplified ones. If you think about the architect, they're getting paid the big bucks to come up with something cool, something new, something innovative and really something complex. If they just whacked out, here's four walls, here's a, there's a door here, there's a few windows, it's probably not worth it to, the, to them to do, design something so simple because the, the, whoever's buying it would say, this is just basic, what am I paying you for? I could have done this. So they're kind of incentivized to make it super complex. But then obviously in the real world, the people who actually have skin in the game start to lose out because it's so complicated when it should just be quite simple. Yeah, it probably happens a lot in specialized professions where people end up, uh, it becomes a competition within that profession to or a hierarchy who looks the smartest in it and they're just competing with each other and of course, as they're doing that, they're not really have contact with the earth and as they keep floating up further into the atmosphere, then there's no practicalities and simplicity that we really need in the system. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. If you're if you're on the ground level, you want things to be as simple and as and as easy as possible. You want it to be simple. If you've got skin in the game, things become simple. If you don't have skin in the game, say if you're paid, we've been hanging a lot of shit on architects, but say like the, the government bureaucrat who's making laws and policies or the consultant who's doing a report, if that report just says, okay, you guys should spend a bit less money, fire a few staff, try to increase your sales, if you made a super simple report, that would be pretty shit ass. You need mm. to make a super complex report that goes into all of the different data, the statistics, historical analyses, comparison to peer companies. You need to have a really complex report because you don't actually have skin in the game. You're not actually the one who's affected by it. You just kind of need to show off. Yeah, 100%. It probably happens everywhere. If I'm like a scientist trying to win a Nobel Prize, 
you're going to shoot for something that no one else <laughs> understands. Like you need to make it sound like, you know, 5% of the top academics sort of get you. And by the time you're just impressing other academics, I'm, you're probably going to end up with shit that's just got no practicality <laughs> whatsoever. Well, it's kind of, you know, the book we did, Lifespan, mm. where it was, it was kind of like the simple version, if you want to live longer is like eat less and exercise more. But then that would be a shit book and no one's going to buy that book. You need to have like take these six different pills and then like have, you know, bio tracking. Like it has to sound complex for anyone to buy that advice. Well, for that episode, when he sold the like you're going to live forever if you do all these things and <laughs> all the simple things just didn't match up to his big sale of you're going to live for 150 That's years. Right. So, when so we go, engineered Go for that, a run three times a week and you'll live to 100. Yeah, that was the only shit that made sense. So, uh, we, we're a bit guilty of so We're going to throw in the stuff that makes no sense just so it, it sounds like what he's selling is true. And we threw in the big words and scientific yeah. stuff that <laughs> definitely no one really gets. And that's so it's kind of like if you if you actually have skin in the game, things become very, very simple. If you have skin in the game, you actually learn through pain, you learn through pleasure. Uh, Taleb says that we kind of got these two brains. There's a there's one brain that doesn't have skin in the game and there's one brain that does. And the brain that has skin in the game, all of a sudden things that seem very boring actually become much less boring and much, much more important. Yeah, let's say if you're an investor in a company, um, if you're doing it with someone else's money, the ultra boring things like checking the reading of the footnotes of the financial statement, if yeah, I'm just, you'd um, skip that. Uh, you'd <laughs> yeah. skip that. Like, but if you're doing it for yourself, um, obviously you start reading the footnotes. It's your own money you're putting on the line, so it's very different. So I think it's a bit like we said at uh, at the start. Don't give me advice on what to trade. Just mm. show me what's in your portfolio. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, because the places where you're putting your body on the line, your your, your body's behind the ball. Uh, that's actually a better thing to follow as opposed to someone just saying something that sounds smart. Yeah, similarly the aircraft safety advisor or the safety checker it's pretty boring if you've got a checklist you've got to check all these things and tick all the boxes and say yep this plane is is fine you can take off that's pretty boring but if all of a sudden if they said hey okay as soon as you finish this you're jumping on the next flight out as well i think all of a sudden you take your job a lot more seriously taleb he was at a dinner party and he was sitting next to this bloke called david he didn't know really who he was or what he did but uh Oh, David, he pulled out this ice pick and he got the bloke next to him to push it into his hand, like into Ooh. his hand, in the back of his hand, between the, the bones of the, the base of the fingers. And Taleb thought he was obviously a weird unit. Oh, you're like, oh, <laughs> stop it. And then someone said, oh, yeah, David, he's, he's a magician. And it turns out it was David Blaine, obviously extremely famous magician. So Taleb said, oh, he's a magician must have been some kind of optical illusion where there was something, I don't know, the, maybe the pick retracted or something and it looked like it was going in but it wasn't actually. So, he figured, oh, yeah, it was a cool little trick. But actually, later in the night when they went and got their coats and he saw David was had like a little handkerchief on his hand picking up the drops of blood because there was actually blood coming out of his hand. It's Taleb that, oh, far out. That was actually legit. <laughs> he actually pushed an ice pick into the middle of his hand <laughs> and took it out and it's much cooler, and he was bleeding. It? <laughs> How much cooler is that? Taleb, obviously, before he was like, hey, that's a, not a bad trick. But then when he found out it was actually legit, he actually pushed an ice pick in. He thought, this is a, that's a serious dude. Oh, all of a sudden, he's real. He's someone who takes risks. Obviously, quite literally, he's got skin in the game in this <laughs> case, does. right? He does. Similar thing when it comes to religion. Like, think about the idea of God. Like, it's a pretty cool idea, God. Mm. Like, all encompassing, just yeah. does everything, superstar. Like, why did God need a Jesus on the ground to get us to actually get behind the religion? 
sort of similar idea because um, you know we respect someone a lot more who's actually in the trenches with us as a human mm. who actually can suffer, who actually dies and sacrifices himself on the cross. So a God stripped of this sort of humanity um, without the skin in the game um, cannot really suffer and because of that, there's no way we can get behind it. So, you know, we need God to, someone who actually drops a bit of blood, a bit like old David slipping an ice pick through his carpal bone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I suppose we're not worshipping the Greek gods anymore because aren't, aren't they just on top of some mountain looking down on everybody? They don't really have skin in the game compared to like God in, in the idea of God's just up in the clouds. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that's cool to have someone watching over us, but God didn't really have skin in the game until he sacrificed his first, his only child, yeah? And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, well, maybe this is pretty legit. We get behind this dude now. <laughs> that's right. Now it's legit. Now, whatever you think about Donald Trump, um, one thing about him is he did have skin in the game. And this is where Nassim, he first saw him as the Republican primary and stand next to all the other candidates who are the uh, Polish bureaucrats. Uh, and then he got old Donald there sitting sitting in the same lineup. Nassim was looking at that, probably writing the book at the same time and thought, all right, looking at those, Trump is actually going to win. Yeah. And you, you look at the polished, ultra slick, ultra professional, someone who's been in politics their whole life, they're saying all the right things, but it doesn't really sound real. It kind of it sounds like a politician sounds. Whereas then you got Donald Trump who was saying weird stuff. He was cracking gags. He was making some, some inappropriate comments, but he, you could see through those visible deficiencies that it was actually a real person. It wasn't uh, a lifetime politician. It was someone who you could see had actually uh, metaphorically put the ice pick through his hand. Mm-hmm. And his opponents were helping him out when they said, all right, Trump, look, you're just a failed entrepreneur, mate. You're just a huge failure. Yeah, he went bankrupt, lost, it was, what, $2 billion negative at one point, wasn't he? That's it. But it, it actually propped up his argument and strengthened him because he's actually a real failed person who's actually lived a life with skin in the game. He's got scars and blemishes and character flaws and, and it sort of decreases the distance between him as a human and him as a ghost. So his scars signal skin in the game. And us people on the ground, we can detect the difference between front and back of office operators. Now, as you know, Taleb loves hanging shit on all different types of people. Through all of his books, there's always someone that he picks out and hangs shit on. Who coughs it the most in this one, you reckon? Well, he actually goes to the individual person level and goes Steven Pinker. Pinker coughs it. Hardcore, like at least six times that he said how shit Pinker was. Yeah, and he comes after. <laughs> well, because Pinker does sound very... I love his books, actually, but he does sound very, very intellectual. He'd probably say the same about Diamond. You get get wrapped up in the excitement of the intellectualism. So, you can see why he goes after him. <laughs> goes after Harris as well. Yeah. Harris, Harris would be a hard one to take down if it was a one-on-one, I think. <laughs> he calls these people, um, obviously, these specific individuals, but also this class of people, the intellectual yet idiot. He says they sound extremely smart. They sound like they know what's going on. They make things complicated. They make things uh, somewhat difficult to understand, which makes it just seem all that more uh, intellectual. But he says, actually, they're kind of idiots in the sense that it's all a lot of fluff. And when you have contact with the real world, it kind of doesn't really work. Yeah, so the point that we've experienced a takeover by these people without skin in the game. So let's say this, so this IYI, this intellectual yet idiot, comes over to you, says all this stuff, and you can't follow. You're not as smart as them. <laughs> they get promoted. They get end up in places of power. So what we end up with is this whole bunch of intellectual yet idiots who are in control of the system. So that's how we end up with things like the Bob Rubin trade and um, a lot of the issues in this system that we've been already spoken about in this episode. So how can we fix this? We've, we've sort of laid out 
the problem, how can we actually start to think of a solution? And Taleb, he tells a story of, I think it was in the Black Swan, originally talked about this as well, Lindy, a deli in New York. All these actors would hang out there and they'd, they'd gossip and they'd realize that if a Broadway show had been had lasted for 100 days, there was a pretty good chance it was going to last 100 more. And if it had lasted 200 days, there was a good chance it was going to last 200 more. So it's kind of the opposite. Normally, you know, animals and, and humans, the older we get, the closer we get to death. But the Lindy effect is the reverse of that. The older it gets, the more likely it is to keep going. Yeah, if you think about a Broadway show or if you as, a, as an artist or anything, whatever you create, from day one, when you put it out into the world, it's going to have some skin in the game. It might fail and then from day one, it's all over. But if it's getting some sales and everything like that, it's been around for 100 days with skin in the game, then it's benefiting from the Lindy effect. It's already got a track record. It's got some runs on the board. And because of those runs on the board, you can attribute that it's going to be around for much longer because of that. Yeah, that's right. The real world's very risky. There's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of fragility. There's a lot of risks. Black swans are popping up. There's a lot of challenges of the real world. So, it's kind of hints to us that if something has already survived, we know that it's kind of got through all those things. It's got a little bit of robustness, maybe even some anti-fragility as well, that it's been harmed, but it's survived. So, it's kind of showing you that through that skin in the game, through that exposure to reality, then there must be something to this. So, Lindy here answers huge meta questions like who's going to judge the expert and who's going to judge the judges? Like let's say a judge makes a call and says, all right, this is going to happen. Um, all right, sounds good. There's no way to actually judge how good that person is. doesn't matter how smart they are. doesn't matter how much just bullshit they confuse you with, with their intellectualism. 10 years' time, you can say, all right, what do you about that, Stephen Pinker? <laughs> yeah. He said the whole world's more peaceful. You know, China just dropped a nuclear bomb on... <laughs> <laughs> Or you are, I'm going to balance that. US just dropped a bond on Spain. And, but that's it. Time time is the real judge in this case. And yeah, that's Lindy. Right. Or you got Robert Kiyosaki, the, the Rich Dad Prophecy. Ever since 1990, there's been a crash coming. There's been a crash coming. 2016, that's the year of the crash. Oh, no, I mean 2017, it's the crash. Oh, no, 2018, the crash is coming. I think coronavirus hit. There it was, the crash. It came. Yeah, it came. <laughs> I've been calling it since the 90s. The prophecy. That was bloody ridiculous, wasn't it? So, one part of the equation is time and that's Lindy and things that have survived hinting us that they have some sort of robustness but the other condition other than time is that they have skin in the game so that they can be exposed to harm because without skin in the game with, you know, with time, um, they're not going to be removed from the system whatsoever. So, without the skin, the mechanism for fragility is disrupted and they may just survive onwards for, for no reason. So, as an example, like... Uh, Lindy, the deli in New York, let's just say it's been there for 100 years purely because it's been putting the best baked uh, pies that you've ever had in your whole entire life and that's why everyone's going back there. Let's just say if it's backed by a government program, let's say it's getting no sales and the government goes, all right, we're just going to look after you there, Lindy, and mm. you know we don't want you to lose your business, so we're just going to um, provide you financial support even without customers. That means you're taking the skin out of the game for the bakery and because of that, we're going to have a shitty little bakery uh, on the corner where it could have been replaced with something better, um, with a better business that's actually profitable with skin in the game. So, this combination of this the, this Lindy effect, surviving time, plus the combination of skin in the game, that's, that's kind of the solution to all, all this big mess. And uh, what Taleb says, if you've got a choice to listen to either a uh, behavioral psychologist or uh, this scientific researcher that's come up with this with this brand new idea or this psychological concept or this theory 
or you can go and listen to your grandmother. He says that odds are you should probably listen to your grandmother. He says mm. that the the odds are that your grandmother's advice is probably going to land ninety percent of the time, but the new uh, the new intellectual advice is probably only shooting at ten percent. So the grandmother is going to benefit from the uh, Lindy effect, right? Because they've had enough time for for bad ideas to be filtered out. But the second half of that is for the grandmother to have some sort of skin in the game. And comes into the quote here by Taleb: "If you do not take risks for your opinion." then you are nothing. So let's say for the grandmother, her whole life she's had opinions and she's put them on the table. Uh, over time, she's had enough conversations for someone to say, all right, that's bullshit, grandma. <laughs> Not everyone calls her grandma, Anna, throughout her whole entire life. But she's going to update her opinion for 50 or so years and by the time she gets to the very end, she's got skin in the game plus Lindy. So she she really knows what she's speaking about. So I think uh, you know, with all of us personally, having ideas, if you put them out on the table, um, there's a chance that you're going to be wrong and you're going to get the consequences of that and then you can get the, the benefits here that Taleb's speaking about. Yeah, I'm just thinking of my my grandmother's advice. There are probably a few things that don't don't quite line up in 2022 but uh, I suppose that's where the, it works 90% of the time. So, so some of the old wives' tales are actually mm. there for a reason. There's a, there's a reason why some of these things have lasted so long because they've been, they've been tried and tested over a long time period of time compare that to the new you said that there was this this replication crisis there was a, a study went out there they took the top 100 papers of these prestigious psychological journals and they said okay let's take these 100 papers let's try and replicate this they found out that only 39 out of 100 were actually able to be replicated the other the other 61 just didn't really work again <laughs> so i don't know what happened the first time around but then taleb says well of those 39 yeah we we replicated them but a lot of them are just fluff and bullshit. Only 10 of those 39 actually worked in the real world. So yes, while you could replicate the actual study in a lab, in the real world, it (laughs) fell apart again. So that's why we're down to 10% from these psychological studies. It's bloody ridiculous. All those books we read that that gave us all those answers, turns out 90% uh, of bullshit. Wonsink Wonsink when we first wrote (laughs) his book, without without the Lindy effect, Wonsink, you're like, oh, we're losing weight, piece of piss here. (laughs) But when Wonsink had a bit of uh, Lindy, yeah. he got pulled apart, didn't he? <laughs> so the people who were, I guess, reading the, the up-to-date scientific literature and they're arguing with other people over at coffee, like, oh, I read the, the latest journal on this topic, you know, don't listen to them. There's a 10% chance they're right. It sounds better to say, oh, I've read this brand new, you know, peer-reviewed journal academic paper than just saying, oh, my grandmother told me. But mm. really, the grandmother's probably more, much more likely to be right. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> or anything on psychology, the one who's read Marcus Aurelius mm. would wipe the floor with really the other person because uh, meditations, it's been there since the, what century? The second century or something. But in any case, like that's been passed from generation to generation all it took is like one era, say like a space of two centuries where it wasn't applicable, what he was speaking about, then that book would be lost. Mm. Same with the Bible. All it takes is one breaking, broken mm. link of the chain with Lindy. But with the Lindy effect, it's been passed down. It's obviously true enough for a grandmother to say, all right, this is a good book. Here you go. Go mm. and study that. And then it's passed on um, ad, ad infinitum. So, Taleb has overarching advice for those who want to go out there and help humanity. He says, never engage in virtual signaling because if you're just spruiking how good you are at something without doing it, you got no skin in the game. It means absolutely nothing. Never engage in rent-seeking. So, don't do be the master risk transferrer. And of course, put your body 
on the line. Put your body behind the ball. Get yourself in the trenches. Go out there and start a business. Be an entrepreneur because you're having a crack at something and you know there's a very good chance it'll fail and that's fine. You can have another crack again and over time, you can have a skin in the game. That's actually how you improve the world. Another bit of advice from Taleb is he says that if the person who's giving the advice, he says if their hair is black, then you should listen to their reasoning but ignore their conclusions and come up with your own conclusions. He says when the hair is gray, consider both the reasoning and the conclusion. And then he says when the hair is white, you probably don't need to listen to the reasoning but pay all your attention to the conclusion. <laughs> Good tell him. I like it. He says no muscles without strength, no friendship without trust, no opinion without consequences, no life without effort, no teaching without experience, no wealth without exposure, no complication without depth. And most of all, nothing without skin in the game. 